If you've got your Bibles, hope you brought them with you. Hope you have a copy, either a copy of your Bible or on your phone. Or there's, if you don't, there's one in front of you. I want you to take it and turn to the book of Malachi. Malachi. We're going to finish our series on the minor prophets today. Expected some groans there of this pleasure that we're ending such an awesome thing, but it's been a good summer for me. It's been I've enjoyed walking through this. Hope you've been um, enlightened. I hope that maybe some of the books that we don't talk about a whole lot have gotten shined on a light shined on them. You've seen a little bit better, and we're going to start stop the series, finish the series today, looking at the book of Malachi. I'm going to resist the, what is. In, I think, the preacher handbook to make a joke about the Italian prophet Malachi. I will not do that today. So we're just talking about Malachi. But really excited about this passage of Scripture and this book and what it means. It's a short book. It's only four chapters. That's why they're called minor prophets. It's because they, not because they're less important, but because they are shorter. And so this is one of the shorter minor prophets, four chapters. The four chapters really short. But it does a great job of encapsulating the message of the prophets as a whole. In fact, I don't know whether you know this or not, but there is this whole kind of industry out there of people that are summarizing books to take a book, especially popular in business circles, you take a book that's 400 pages long and you turn it into a 10-minute discussion and they tell you everything you need to know about the book. I don't know about you, but I have read many books in my lifetime that I get to the end of it, have spent hours with it, and I thought, boy, I could have known that in 15 minutes, what I needed to get from that. So they take the entire book and they condense it. Well, if you remember all the way back to the very first week that we did this, if you were around, we talked about originally these 12 different minor prophets were just one book that flowed from one to the other. And so Malachi kind of serves as an ending for a couple of reasons. It's the last word that God would speak to the people of his of his nation, the Hebrew people, the Israelite people, until Jesus comes. And so this is the last word spoken until the John the Baptist um, birth is prophesied that leads to Jesus. And so it is an ending in that way. It's the latest events of the Old Testament time period. But then also, um, one of the things that we have to understand is it does a good job of encapsulating, of summarizing all of the message. And if I could encapsulate, if I could summarize the minor prophet's message, and then we're going to dig deep into Malachi. In just a couple of statements, it would simply be this. We don't always realize when we have drifted away from God. But when God brings that to our attention, if we repent and return, He will return to us. One of the things that has struck me, and we'll see this in Malachi again and again, is that the people are like, what, God, there's a problem here? And God is like, yes. And I wonder how many times in my life I've been confident in who I am and my walk with the Lord, and God is like, well, there's some issues you need to think about. And so as we open up Malachi today, we're really going to see this understanding of what's going on. Now, you take Malachi chapter 1. And uh, the people of Malachi, by the way, are asking a very simple question. They've been living for a hundred years trying to do what God had called them to do, trying to do all the religious rules exactly as they're prescribed, and yet nothing seems to be moving forward. And they begin to ask the question, why bother with this religious stuff? Why should I even bother with it? Like I look around and our neighbors that aren't following God have just as much as we do. I look around and they're just as successful as we are. They're just having just as good of a life as we are. And I am killing myself trying to do these traditional religious things and 
nothing seems to matter. And we all, if we're honest with ourselves, I know we're in church, and so sometimes we don't admit to these kind of things, but we all, if we're honest with ourselves, have moments in our walk with the Lord when it feels like nothing is really happening, and we might even ask the question, is it worth bothering with? person next to you that doesn't follow the Lord at all seems to get the promotion and you get jumped over. The financial things that you're trying to achieve, the financial goals that you want, you realize are not only not happening for you, they're happening for other people. And as you look at it, you realize they're part of the reason they're not happening for you is because you're giving of time, you're giving of talent, you're giving of money to religious causes and other people are not. And they're like, well, they're getting ahead. Why is that? Why even bother with that? Or you're looking for a relationship and you've got the standards that God's Word talks about in that, about what you ought to look for in a man what the relationship would look like or what friendship should be like. And you notice that these other people out there aren't looking for that and they seem to be finding happiness and they seem to be finding friends and you can't. Why bother with this stuff? The book of Malachi, the people are asking that question and so God's going to answer them real quickly and then say, but there are some things you need to work on. It's going to be interesting because he's going to give them a quick statement about the reason that they ought to bother and we'll talk about that in a moment. And then he's going to give them four charges, four problems in their lives. And he's going to make it, they're going to be kind of, they're going to be kind of theoretical issues. And then he's going to say, and here's an example of where that's the case. And I just want to warn you today, okay? When we get into these, some of these are going to hit close to home. In fact, I would say to you, if today you walk out of this sermon, not because of me, not because of my ability, not because of my putting words together, but because simply what God's Word says, if you can walk out of what we're going to talk about today and not at any time think, whoop, that hit close to home, then your heart may be farther away from the Lord than you imagine. Malachi chapter 1, starting in verse 1. A pronouncement. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. He comes right out of the gate, right off the bat and says, here's the reason why it's worth it, why you bother with it, why it matters. It's because the Lord God Almighty loves you. He cares about you. He knows you. He knows you by name. He cares about who you are. He cares about what's happened in your life. He cares about what's gone on, what will happen, what has happened, where you've been hurt, where you've achieved, where you've triumphed. He looks at the nation of Israel and he says, I have loved you. And if you walk away from this message and you hear nothing else from the rest of it, I want you to hear this. God is deeply, passionately about loving you. He cares for you. He desires the best for you. And he says to the nation of Israel, he says to them, they have come back. This is a group of people that has been living for a hundred years after they have come back from exile, after they've rebuilt the temple, after they've rebuilt the walls, after they've had a major revival. And he says to them, listen, you are asking the question, is it worth it? Can we keep going? And my, my answer to you is yes, because I love you. These are a group of people that didn't have idol issues anymore. In fact, they say scholars and historians, they look through and they said they were so scarred by the Babylonian exile, so scared that it was going to happen again, that they did not, they did not go back to idol worship again. 
This is the time when they followed everything to the letter of the law. In fact, this is the time frame when Malachi is writing, when people in the New Testament, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the super religious people, start to form because they want to follow the law exactly. They start interpreting every little bit of it. These are the time when the people that Jesus would call whitewashed tombs because they looked good on the outside. They went to the right church. They did the right things. They were at the right places with the right people doing the right ceremonies. But he says on the inside, you're completely dead. These are religiously active people who look great on the outside. And God looks at them and says, and I want you to know something. I love you. What's about to happen here is something that you may have experienced in your life, if you're a parent especially. I'm just wondering if there are any parents in the room that have ever had something they need to have a conversation with their child about, and they start the conversation with the phrase, first of all, I want you to know that I love you. Anybody ever had one of those conversations? All right. First of all, I want you to know I love you. What usually follows that? But, right? I'm proud of you. I love you. We're really excited about all that God's doing in your life. But, and then you follow with what you need to have a conversation about, right? And then following that, usually how do you end? Again, I love you. I just want you to know that. In business terms, sometimes they call that the sandwich method. The compliment, the compliment with the meat in the middle, right? And so God's about to do an I love you but to the people through Malachi. He's saying to them, the word of the Lord of Israel through Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord. And the people, I think this is bold, the people respond to him. You ask, he says, how have you loved us? Now think about the boldness of that question. I'm going to talk about that a little more in depth in a minute because it's part of what he brings out on them. But he basically starts by saying, listen, I want you to understand what I'm about to say comes out of heart of love. And as your pastor, as a fellow follower of Jesus Christ, I want you to know that what Amalekai is about to remind us of, the places it's going to hit home, is coming out of a place of love. And he says that I have a few things against you. And the first is this. You are religious. You are following everything you're supposed to do, but you're self-seeking. You're religious, but you're self-seeking. And he's not just going to leave it there with kind of that, that uh, abstract understanding. Well, what do you, well, self-seeking, yeah, I know, I'm a selfish person. I look after myself. He's going to say, let me give you a specific example of where you're self-seeking. Chapter 1, verse 13 says this. You also say, now listen, he's talking about when they're coming and bringing offerings to the temple, when they're coming to worship, when they are actually coming to church, if you will. And he says, when you walk into church, you say, man, this is a nuisance. You scorn it. You bring stolen, lame, or sick animals. You bring this as an offering. Am I to accept this from your hands? Ask the Lord. He says, here's the issue. You come to worship and you come because you feel you have an obligation to come. You have a duty to come. You have a, a reason that the community looks around you to come. You think it's required to come, but you don't come with the right attitudes. You don't come with the right heart. You come in thinking, I wish I could be somewhere else. I wish I didn't have to do this. I wish this wasn't part of my normal schedule. I wish I could be anywhere else right now. I just wish this wasn't such a nuisance. He said, on top of that, when you come, you bring me the leftovers, the things that are on top of, you're not so good and you bring that to me as an offering he says am i really supposed to accept that 
The people are asking, Lord, we're doing everything you've asked us to do. We're coming and doing all the stuff you've asked us to do, but nothing seems to change. Why is that? He goes, have you looked at what you're bringing to me? You come in thinking it's a nuisance that you wish you didn't have to, that if something else more important comes up on your schedule, you're going to go do that. And then when you do come, when you actually do make it here, when you are good enough to actually come in, you come in and you bring in damaged goods. I read this week about a missionary who said, and this is a quote from the missionary, when you are a missionary, you constantly have people give you the leftovers of their lives. He said, multiple times I've heard this phrase, hey, I just got a brand new computer, and so I've got one that's six or seven years old that I'm not using anymore. I'd like to donate it to you. Or, hey, man, we were cleaning out our closet the other day, and there's some clothes in there that we haven't worn like in 10 years. And I was wondering if y'all could use those. We'd love to give them to you. The missionary says, you always appreciate their generosity, of course, but you wondered what it said about their heart that they upgraded their houses, upgraded their lifestyles first, and offered to God what had no value in their lives anymore. When I was growing up, um, every, about every week or every week and a half, we would have a night of supper called muskos. Y'all know what muskos are? Those are leftovers that are left in the refrigerator and they must go. They must get out. Mom would say, you know, what's for supper tonight, Mom? We haven't, you know, what are you cooking for us tonight, Mom? And she will go, it's Musco's night. Get in there and find you something. And here was the problem with the Musco's. In my family, then, as in my family now, I had, I had an older brother, and so we both liked to eat, and uh, we enjoyed eating. And so if there were lots of leftovers from a particular meal, it would mean that we were less than satisfied with the meal when it was originally given to us. Right? And so if it was time to go get the muscos, that meant we were going to have to eat the things we didn't like the first time. I wonder how many of us in our lives willingly give over to God the muscos of our lives anyway. We got to clean out the closet, so we'll get rid of that. Or, man, we're at the end of the month, and man, we had a little extra money this month. Why don't we just give that to the Lord? He says to them, you are giving out of convenience when it comes to the worship. Let me ask you the question. What does God get from you? Does He get your first? Does He get your best? Or does He get the must-goes? Does He get the leftovers? And I'm not just talking about giving. We're actually going to hit on giving a little bit more in just a minute because Malachi hits on giving a little more in just a minute. I'm just talking about the genuine following of your life. If you come into some unexpected windfall, what's the first thing it goes to? Is it to upgrade your lifestyle, upgrade your savings account, or does God get the first and the best? What about the best part of your day? What about the time when you're most aware, most awake, most in tune? Do you give that to other things? Do you give that to video games? Do you give that to television watch? Do you give that to business practices? Do you give that to calling customers? Do you give that to what do you give that best time to of the day? Does your time with the Lord end up, well, I've got some extra time, or I remembered this morning? What about your career? Some of you have careers that would be useful in being strategic and advancing the gospel. Have you ever even thought of your career in that way? What about your thoughts, your attention, 
What about your promotion? What about the things in life that you tell other people about that they ought to check out? Does it have anything to do with the Lord, with the church, with being a part of that? Or is it all about what you value? Jim Elliott, the missionary, is famous for saying, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And yet we have built a society, even among believers, even among Christians, where we give up the things that we are going to lose. We keep and hold on to those things we're going to lose anyways, all the time. How we serve the Lord, the best of our time, the best of our talent, the best of our offerings, tells a statement to the people around us and to others about how we feel about Him. David in 2 Samuel 24, 24, when asked to give an offering, says, I will not give unto the Lord that which costs me nothing. C.S. Lewis said that the only way to know your giving was where it should be is that it changes your lifestyle. He says, until you get to that point, you are not giving in faith, you are giving in leftovers. Malachi looks at the people around and says, you are taking care of yourself first, your desires, your wants. The second one's related to that, but he goes in a different direction. He says, not only are you um, self-seeking, but you're also self-centered. You're religious, but you're self-centered. He's going to use a strange illustration for this. He's going to use marriage and divorce. And he was going to say some things, and we're going to talk about some things that people will point to, a little controversial in Malachi that he says about divorce. I'm going to explain why he says those in just a moment. But I want you to understand, he tells them that they care only about their feelings, their emotions, their desires, their wants, that they want to act like they're religious, they want to act like they're following the Lord, but in reality they're doing everything to make sure they are taken care of. He says, starting in chapter 2, verse 13, this is another thing you do. He says, you are covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. And you ask why. He says, you are coming and you are kneeling and you are crying at the altar, that when it is decision time, you are at the altar, you are crying, you are praying, you are seeking me, and you're like, why, Lord, why are you not answering? He says, but the reason I'm not, in verse 14, is because even though the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, you have acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Didn't God make them one and give them a portion of the Spirit? What is the one seeking? Godly offspring. So watch yourself carefully so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. This is what's happening here. And I need you to understand kind of the context of what's happening. They all come back from Babylon. And for a hundred years they're living, they're trying to do what's right. They are much more engaged with their with their neighbors and their foreign relations around them. And during that time, some of the men, while they were in Babylon and passing on to their sons, or while they're back from Babylon and all the people that are around, become very interested, become uh, people that become infatuated with, if you will, the national, um, international flavor of some of the women that are around them. And so they begin to marry people that are outside of their faith. Jewish men took a fancy to foreign women, found them attractive. And the problem is, and hear me very clearly, 
God comes to them and says, that is not what you should be doing. And what I want you to understand very clearly, this is not an issue of race. This is an issue of religion. Because those women were serving foreign gods, and they were bringing foreign gods into their household. And especially there were men who were Jewish men who had married Jewish women. They were trying to follow the Lord. And then suddenly they are divorcing those Jewish women, and they're seeking after these foreign women that are following foreign gods. And he says, what happens is, the issue is, you care only about your happiness and your fulfillment and nothing about the plan that God has placed in your life. And he mentions there a couple of things. He mentions the marriage vows being broken, but he also mentions godly children as the desire for marriage. And here's what he's really saying. Part of what we're trying to do in rebuilding God's people is through a godly mom and a godly dad marrying and having children that are raised in the way to live for the Lord and the next generation will come and the generation after that. By the way, this is just interesting to me. Sociologists, not even Christian sociologists, but they notice it as well. But sociologists have talked about two factors that show you a society is becoming more narcissistic and self-centered. Do you know what they are? A rising divorce rate and a plummeting rate of birth among their people. More divorces and fewer kids. There are studies out right now. This is, kind of, it's, this is another thing that's fascinating. There are studies out right now that show that the average Christian is having more kids than the non-Christians. And so it's a long-term play for us. We've got um, 200 years we'll, be in the, we'll have many more kids than everybody else, right? You raise them in godly homes. That's a joke. That's not what the long-term play is, all right? But what happens is when you care about yourself and your feelings and who you are, then your marriage is a convenience for you. And kids are accessories. But the godly understanding of that is that your marriage is a commitment. And your kids are a legacy that fall in the line with the Lord. And what he says to them is, you are denying what God has called marriage to be. And this is the big point. Even your marriage, your family, is not about you. Your kids are not about you. Your spouse is not about you. It is all in relation to how you're falling in line with what God has called you to know. Now when I know that, Susan and I celebrated 21 years of marriage this past week. We don't have any idea... I got called middle-aged last Sunday night, and uh, then I realized I've been married almost as long as I wasn't married. Susan was, got married at 21. I was, I was older. I was 22. Um, and so I was the older statesman. But like we're almost at that point, we've been married longer than we weren't married, you know. And you start to think through all that. And listen, uh, and Susan, Susan's down in ETC, but um, like 21 years... There have been difficult moments in those 21 years. I, I once did a sermon. I think I've told you this before. I once did a sermon series when I was in Ripley. And uh, I was talking about every couple has arguments. Every couple has disagreements. Every couple has tough times. And I was standing at the back door and a guy comes and goes, we've never had an argument in our lives. I said, then one of you isn't telling the truth. Because <laughs> first of all, you have. Second of all, that means one of you isn't going to disagree with the other. And you've heard me say that if two people have the same thing about same idea about everything, then one of them is unnecessary. And a marriage is something that has two people with different ideas in it, and it's hard sometimes. 
Amen? It's hard. That may have been a little too strong of an amen there. It's hard. But the thing that sustains us in the midst of it often is it's not about us or our happiness or our desires or our wants. It's about what the Lord has called us to do. And the Lord has blessed us with four beautiful kids. And we are doing all that we can trying to lead them in the way that God would have them to go to be the people God has called them to be. And that means sometimes having the I love you but discussions. It means celebrating with them. Listen, it also doesn't mean, and I don't want to give any implication because he does say one of the primary motives of marriage is godly children. But I also realize that Susan and I, in the early years of our marriage, struggled with infertility. And so sometimes that happens, and that doesn't mean our marriage was any less important then than it is now. But the point is, it's not about us. And we live in a society that has not only made marriage about us, it has made everything about us. I went to Panera Bread yesterday. I order from the kiosk at Panera Bread because my specific order is way too complicated for the girl that's working the register. Because of the things I don't want on the sandwich that they want to put on the sandwich. And the things that I want to add. And so you know what I can do? I can customize every bit of my order on that kiosk. So what I want here and how much and extra this and less that. and Boy, I can build my perfect sandwich. And everywhere I go, they want to customize the experience to me. And what that has led to is a self-centered society that thinks everywhere ought to cater to us. And what Scripture teaches us is not about us. It's not about our desires. It's not about our wants. It's not about our needs. It's about living for the Lord's glory. He says, you have become a self-centered people. Thirdly, he has the third charge against. We're only halfway through the charges. Third charge against them. He says, you're religious, but you're unbelieving. Now, this is in chapter 2, verse 17. And then we'll look at chapter 3, verse 13. He does it in both places. In 2.17, he says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you ask, How have we wearied Him? I love this thing in Malachi. It's not great on our part. It's the people's part. But I just love how God will lay a charge against them. And every time they're like, Well, how do we do that? Lord, we didn't know that was happening. Well, what happened there? I think about how many times I am absolutely clueless about my own sin and my own shortcomings. You ask, how have we wearied you? And he says, everyone who does what is evil is good, you say, in the Lord's sight, and he is delighted with him. Or else you ask, where is the God of justice? He says, you weary me when you question my love for you. Now, I want to hear this very clearly. It's okay to come to God with your questions. It is fine. He is big enough to handle them. But when you constantly come to God again and again and again with the same question, questioning His love, it is wearisome to Him. He has proven His love to you again and again. To the Israelites, He would say, I have brought you out of bondage not once but twice when you did it to yourself. I brought you out of bondage. I chose you. 
I have saved you from armies that are three times your size and told you to step back and watch. I delivered you from the most powerful nation in the world twice. So don't tell me that you don't know what I've done to show I love you. I have given you chance after chance after chance after chance. I have rescued you when you went the wrong way. I brought deliverers for you throughout the book of Judges. I gave you good kings and you did not follow them. I sent you prophets and you did not listen. I have shown you again and again and again that I loved you. And that's the Old Testament. The next book after Malachi is Matthew. And in the New Testament we find out there has never been a demonstration of the love of God more than when Jesus Christ came and died for our sins on the cross. And he says to you and he says to me, listen, I'm big enough to handle your questions, but when you ask me again and again whether I care about you, when I have given you my son who has died for your sins, that wearies me. J.C. Ryle said that in light of the cross, the greatest insult you can give to God is to doubt his love for you. Maybe your doubt never leads you all the way to unbelief. Maybe it does. I saw a sad story this week. I don't know if, if you probably haven't been following this. This is one of the things that kind of happens in the world that I kind of run in in religious circles and pastors and those kind of things and what's happened on Twitter. But there was a guy that wrote a book in the 90s, a guy named Josh Harris called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Uh, late 90s, early 2000s, and it was about purity culture and how to remain pure until you're married and God's calling on our lives to do that. About three years ago, he denounced that book and said that he didn't believe what he wrote in that anymore and he's sorry he wrote it and he asked all publishers to remove it. Last week, a week and a half ago, it was announced that he and his wife were separating for the purpose of getting a divorce and he announced that on Instagram, which is where we announce all major life uh, announcements these days. And then at the end of last week, he just said, thank you for all the support. And then he said, and I just have to admit to you right now that because of some things that he saw in his life, questioning whether God was with him, he would no longer even classify himself as a Christian. And again, he announced that on Instagram. And I just watched that and I thought about how easy it is to slide from, does God care about me in this moment? Did God hear me here to does God even care at all? Is God watching? I don't know that I can trust him. And then you've slid away. And God comes to the people and says, I've tried in every way I can to give you what you need and to deliver you from all that is happening. I provided for you in the wilderness even when you were disobedient. I gave you deliverers and judges even when you were disobedient. So maybe your doubts never lead you that far, but perhaps they lead to a place where you dulls your joy or mutes your worship. And you just don't know if you can make it today or you're wondering why it happened now or how are you ever going to get over that. I do find myself in moments when it's hard to just release myself in worship to witness about him to other people with passion. And in those moments, if I'm spiritually in tune, I understand that God is saying to me, what more can I do to prove to you that I love you? Think about the times I've been faithful to you. I mentioned Susan and I struggled with infertility. Doctors, many of y'all know this, some of you don't. Doctors told us we had 0% chance to have kids, zero. As my brother-in-law often says, I hope that guy's selling insurance and not doing doctor work now. It's a miracle of God we have four. God says, what about that? 
What about that time? What about, what about that moment when I delivered you? What about that prayer that I answered? What about that moment when you saw me use you? What about that time? Questions are okay, but when you put the character of God in question, you have stepped over a line. Questions are okay, but there comes a point at which doubting has to stop and not trusting God becomes an insult. Which leads us to the fourth one and final one. He says, you're religious, but you're untrusting. And just as he uses a practical example with each of these, with this one he uses tithing. And my guess is, if you're here and you've been in church and you've heard a message from Malachi, it's probably been from Malachi chapter 3, because that's where Malachi tells everybody to give money. And here's what I want to say. We're not a church that talks a whole lot about money. There are some weeks that you don't even know offerings being taken as you leave, all right? That doesn't mean that the obligation on our lives is any less. And I will tell you this, if there's one failing, there are lots of failings I have as a pastor and as a communicator, as a preacher. One of them is I probably don't talk about this enough. Here's what he says. Chapter 3, verse 8. He says, Will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? And here's their question. Well, how are we doing that, God? It's like just clueless, right? He says, by not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions, that's the tithe, you are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. This is one of the clearest examples in Scripture of how God feels about Christians and what we call the tithe, or giving the first ten percent of what we make financially to the Lord. Now, clearly God doesn't ask for it because he needs it. God has all that he needs. He doesn't need your money in order to make the world work, in order to accomplish his task. But it is an indication of how our heart is attuned to him. He commands us to give in this way to declare our trust in him. In fact, it has been said, and I agree with this statement, that tithing might be the single best indicator of where your heart is with the Lord. Whether you are surrendered to Him, whether you are trusting Him. God takes it seriously here. He says when you don't do it, it's like breaking into His house and robbing Him. And I'm not bringing this up today because we suddenly have financial needs at the church. Bring it up because it's in the Bible. That's what it says here. That's what we're to do. It's in the midst of this book. It's a central part of what he's teaching. Now, one of the things that God would say through Malachi is, if you haven't begun to give, if you haven't begun to sacrificially give towards the work of the Lord, then you may not have really begun your walk in faith. I don't mean you're not saved. I'm talking about the process of sanctification. I'm talking about the process of being made into what God calls us to be. I'm talking about that. And the truth is we all give to something, our time, our talent, to something. The question is, are you going to give first to the Lord? He comes to him and he says, the first thing you do with your money is to give to the Lord, who is your joy, who is your security. Otherwise, you're trusting someone else, your savings account or your bank account or your financial advisor with your security instead of God. So God comes to him and says, I've got four charges. You're self-centered, you're selfish, you're untrusting, you're unbelieving. And he says, here's the problem that we have. It's perpetually happening again and again. 
You see, a hundred years before, they had stood before the Lord. And this is fascinating to me. In the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, they stand before the Lord and they make a commitment to Him. And they say, in view of all this, we're making a binding agreement. We're putting it in writing. This is in chapter 9 of Nehemiah. Our leaders, our Levites, our priests are going to put their seals on it to say, we're going to give everything we've got to this. And then this is what they tell them they're going to do. We're going to give our first and best to God. We're going to put God's temple first, and we're going to honor God with our marriages. We are not going to intermarry with unbelievers. And a hundred years later, Malachi comes and says, you are not giving your first or your best to the Lord. You are not putting God's temple first, and you have begun to marry unbelievers. And it sounds like that they have fallen into the trap that they were in when they first made their commitment. Within a few short years, their commitment is gone. Nehemiah saw this by the end of his time. It was just a few years. It wasn't even all the way to Malachi because this is one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament. I love this. This is Nehemiah chapter 13, 25. He comes to him and says, I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I mean, that's a sermon right there. Can you imagine the phone calls tomorrow morning if I started walking through just clocking people, yanking people's hair out, cursing at you, spitting on you? Be glad Nehemiah is not your pastor today, all right? And we look at him and say, man, what are those Israelites doing? Don't they know better? But how many times in your life have you said, I need to be better here. I need to do better there. I need to have better this. I need to follow God more. I need to. And before long you realize you are back in the same cycle you were before you ever made the commitment. And God looks at this and he says, that's the issue. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 7, he says, Since the days of your fathers you have turned from my statues, you have not kept them. And so he gives a solution that's coming. In Malachi chapter 4, the last chapter of the Old Testament, he talks about something. The book actually ends, by the way, with the word curse. But tucked in the last chapter is one of the most beautiful and clear promises of the Messiah that is to come. For look... The day is coming, it will burn like a furnace, and the arrogant and the every evildoer will be stubble. They're going to lay low the unrighteous. You're worried about the unrighteous, they will be laid low. But he says, but you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, shall rise up with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stalls. I didn't grow up on the farm. I don't know what that means, all right? Here's the dilemma the human race has. We want God to deliver us from evil. But the evil we want him to deliver us from is found inside of us. We believe God should be a God of justice. We don't want an unjust God, and we know it. Think about how much we object when we see some guilty person get off free. Somebody shoots someone and the judge says no penalty. No, the victim lives matter. The Bible says God glory matters, justice matters. We say we want a just God, but the problem is if we had a just God, he would send us us all to eternity without him. He is just, but he's also gracious. And the third part of our dilemma is no matter how much we resolve to do better, we don't. So the Messiah Malachi talks about is that he comes like a furnace, but instead of burning us with the wrath of God, God's wrath burns him. He comes as the sun, S-U-N of righteousness, rising with healings in his wing. But the word here is sun, S-U-N, is talking about the sun, S-O-N. And 400 years after Malachi closed his book, Jesus stepped onto the scene of history. In his first sermon, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he uses the word repent. 
And then he goes around reversing the curse of Malachi. He heals diseases. He calms storms. He casts out demons. He raises the dead. And the reason he could do that is because he absorbed the curse. He took it upon himself. And that Messiah, Jesus, will either destroy or purify like a furnace or like the sun. And the message of the minor prophets from beginning to end, that series that we've done is this. That all of us have things in our life, sin in our life, problems in our lives that sometimes we are none aware of. We don't even know they're there. We don't even realize they're there, but they are. And in the midst of that, the question is, how are we going to respond? And every one of the prophets gives us an opportunity. God is using them to tell us, just as he told the original people, today will you repent and return. The people of Malachi, from what we know, didn't really. 400 years of silence happened before Jesus would come. And the question I have for you today is, are you willing to repent and return? Let's pray together.